1969 New York Mets shocked the world when, despite the long shot odds, they won the World Series against their prohibitive favorites, the Baltimore Orioles. Buckle on up as you are about to listen to utterly fascinating stories about baseball legends from a key player and slugger on that miracle Mets team. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest today was an integral part of not only arguably the most famous baseball team of all time, but perhaps the most famous sports team of all time, the 1969 New York Miracle Mets. This lefty slugging right fielder went on to hit a robust 300 that year. This helped the Mets win their first pennant, beat the Hank Aaron-led Braves in the National League Championship Series, and then went on to everyone's disbelief and amazement, including mine, to beat the heavily favored Baltimore Orioles in the World Series in just five games. He has authored two books, including his current one, After the Miracle, the amazing story of the 1969 Mets team and the trip he organized a few years ago with a few other 1969 Mets teammates to visit the ailing Tom Seaver at his home in California. He is about to tell us the story of that magical Miracle Mets season and his incredibly well-written and fascinating book, which I personally had the pleasure of reading. Welcome to the Motivation Show number 24, Art Shamsky. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Art, you're a podcaster yourself, so you know a little bit about uh, uh, podcasting. <laughs> and so I am going to maybe regret doing this, Art, but I am going to prove to you what kind of a Mets fan I actually was and still is, and that I am an original Shea Stadium bleacher bum that actually grew up nearby in Flushing, Queens. Are you ready for some big time proof art? No, yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, I run into people now who have so many stories about having gone to come to the games at Shea and even to Polo Ground. So I'm always interested in, in those kind of things to, to uh, look back in some of those fun, great times that, uh, that's met history. Well, here we go, Art, because again, I'm going to do something I may regret later. Don't laugh too hard, but here we go. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and meet the Mets. Bring your kitties, bring your friends, guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really sacking those balls, hitting those home runs over the wall. East side, west side, everybody's going down to meet the M-E-T-S Mets of New York Town. A Jane Jarvis Love classic. It. Love huh? it. Jane oh. Jarvis, exactly. Right? Yeah. Queen I'm, of Shea. Yeah, I'm going to keep that. my day job, uh, Art. 
Yeah, well, no, it was great. Yes, and that brings back great memories for me. Uh, I just, uh, you know, I played 13 years, and for all intents and purposes, nobody ever talks about the other 12. It's really about 1969 and being part of that Met team. And then, of course, I was there in 68 when we were uh, not too good a team. But, uh, you know, I'm always fascinated by, by fans that come up to me and talk about those early years with the Mets. They have great stories. And, and um, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's just fun to talk to them and talk to you like that. And, uh, and, and you knew the whole, every word of the song. So it's, it, you know, how can I say anything bad about that? You, you know, I bought a lot of those dollar 30 bleacher seats and there was a buck 30 literally in those days. I remember it. <laughs> well, I remember in 1969, quite honestly, a box seat for the world series, I think was eight hours. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a different world, obviously. Now, if you, we can certainly talk about that, uh, in, in this, in this program. What a, what a bargain, right, Art? <laughs> yeah, it was a bargain, but, uh, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. Also, when you when you say that, I I've met so many people along along over the years that have told me that uh, you know they snuck into the ballpark and uh, you know they waited till a couple innings were over and then they somehow got into the ballpark. And I always tell them, you know, that's the reason we never made any money because most of the people were sneaking into the ballpark and not paying for tickets. So so um, but whatever way they could get into the ballpark was fine with me. It's it's interesting because uh, it goes along with that. Thing I always hear from people about uh, October 16th, 1969, when we won the World Series. Over the years, I've probably had 100,000 people tell me they were at that game. <laughs> yeah. When I hear that, I think about uh, Shea and I say, well, as far as I know, it held about 51, 52,000 people. And, um, and I guess, uh, you know, if they think they were there, then that's great. If they actually were there, that's great too. So it doesn't make any difference to me because so many people remember that particular date in their, well, either there was in their lives or in the history of baseball. There was only one game, actually, I didn't get into. <laughs> I was not at that World Series championship game, but there was one game in July of 1969 that I couldn't get into. And I went and listened to it on the radio. Uh, it was in the ninth inning, and there was one out, and a guy by the name of Jimmy Qualls from the Chicago Cubs gets a base hit and ruins Tom Seaver's no-hitter. What are well, your memories? You know, you know, what's interesting about that game, and, and that was part of a season that was so incredible. So many interesting ha things happened to us that year. Um, you know, uh, I mean, Black Cat running on the field, uh, Steve Carlton striking out, what, 18 or 19 of us, and we winning the game four to three. Um, you know, just the confrontations we had with the Cubs and, and all sorts of uh, just eerie things happened that year. But what's, what I think with that particular game, it's almost taken on a life of its own in the sense that, that he's become more notable about that game, almost perfect game, than if he would have pitched a perfect game. And I know that sounds a little crazy, but the reality of it is it's uh, so many people talk about that, that at bat by Jimmy Qualls, that particular game, and, and, and the reaction of Tom Seaver once the base hit uh, happened. And so I think, again, it's taken on a life of its own and, 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 and really was was part of a season that was so incredible with so many different things. But but that was just one game in, in a career that Tom Seaver had that was uh, unbelievable in a sense. Uh, you know, I got a, a chance to uh, to play against him in 1967 when I was with the Reds before I came over to the Mets. And, and um, you know, it, it was interesting that, to, to see his uh, evolution to being the, the great pitcher he became. Uh, you know, in 67, I think, you know, we, we all thought he was going to be a pretty good pitcher, but nobody – knew for sure that I he believe was he was 16 and 12 or 16 and 13 like yeah, those two years the, uh, yeah it might have been the 
National League Rookie and Pitcher of the Year. Yes. Well, I, I do know that I hit a three-run home run off of him in a game he was pitching a shutout, seven to nothing, at Shea in the ninth inning. I hit a meaningless three-run home run in, in the game, and uh, we, we talked about that when I got over to the Mets, and we we, uh, we never we brought it up initially, but never talked about it after that. So, uh, But uh, I got a chance to see him on both sides, and I can honestly tell you that I, I – uh, I think that the history will show that he's one of the best pitchers ever to pitch in the game. And, and this year, of course, the Mets are wearing a 41 patch on their uniforms, which I think is very apropos. So, so, um, um, you know, he, he just was an honor to play with and, 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 and be part of that 69 team. But that one game you mentioned in 69 was just one of many that was unbelievable and great series we had with the Cubs and the Cardinals and the Pirates and so many big, important games. Yeah, there were so many memorable moments that live on in not only baseball lore, but in all the sports lore. When you think about Rocky, Ron Swoboda's incredible catch, he was literally horizontal to the ground in the World Series. I mean, that to me, I, I can't think of another uh, catch in history that was more meaningful and more iconic. Well, you know what happened in that game, uh, that particular catch, as people remember and, and talk about it now, that game, uh, that ticker catch he made was an unbelievable catch and but a run did score from third tagged up it was a sacrifice fly that was hit by Brooks Robinson and tied the game which was game four and then we went into extra innings and won that game and Seaver was pitching in that particular game and that uh, that Ronnie always says Ron Sobota always says you know some people had a career I had a catch and that was an unbelievable catch that that people will talk about forever but in game three um started in that game and of course I was in right field when Tommy Agee made that great catch in right center and he also made the one in the left center and uh, had an unbelievable game where he uh, he saved runs and hit a home run in the bottom of the first it was a, a kind of game that you dream of as a kid to have in the World Series but I'm going to give you a little trivia that a lot of people don't know so unfortunately it, I'm part of it but in some ways it's good in some ways it's bad I have the distinction of making the last out of the only game we lost in the World Series, and that was game one. And um, and people don't, you know, they either remember it or they don't remember it. It's no big deal. But we then went on to win the next four in a row, and, and the rest is history. But it, it was great to be part of that team. And the things you mentioned about the catches in the World Series and, and the Seavers game during the season are just so vivid in my mind and so important in my life. And it's funny how those things have been passed on from generation to generation and people weren't even born, weren't even born, know about that, that team and those particular plays from their parents or their grandparents. And I find it fascinating that, that, uh, that people still talk about that, uh, you know, what, 52 years, is it 52 years? 52 now? years. Amazing. Yeah. And what's, what's amazing is that, uh, you know, you, you said it in the, when you were introducing me and thank you for that nice introduction that, you know, it's interesting if you look back in the history of baseball, um, I, you know, and, and, and I say this with all due respect to all the other teams in the game. I, I, I really believe the 27 Yankees are so memorable because of who was part of that team. Oh, yeah. Murderous Row. And Garrick and, and all those great players. But when you ask somebody who won the World Series in 1986 or 1994, unless they're really a big fan of that team or. 19, whatever it might be, they don't know who won the World Series. But if you ask somebody who won in 1969, yep. they know the New York Mets won 69. the World Series. Not only the Mets, but we had, the, we had two other great teams, didn't we, in New York City that year? Yeah, that's right. It, it, was, uh, it was a year. That was my first book, 
called the Magnificent Seasons. And when the Jets won the Super Bowl in January, we won uh, the World Series in October and the New York Knicks won the NBA championship in um, May of 70. And what's interesting about those three teams that all of us won for the first time and uh, nobody ever won before, which I thought was really fascinating. But again, just going back to that 1927 and 1969, I don't mean to compare our team to that incredible team the Yankees had, but the people do know who won the World Series in 69. And, and I think I think that's just an incredible legacy about that team. Well, you know, what strikes me about your book is how humble you are, because you do talk about you making that last out in that first World Series game. And, you know, 1969 was a magical year. There was a lot going on, good and bad. Of course, there was the Vietnam War was raging. And then we had the first uh, man on the moon landing, you know, Neil Armstrong. We had Woodstock. And then, of course, the Miracle Mets came along. And you guys gave hope to the rest of the world. You gave hope in, in a year where there was a lot of unfortunate you know, a death from Vietnam, let's face it. And you guys uh, came on and you gave us a reason to smile. And that is another reason why you'll be remembered forever. Also, the first seven years of the Mets didn't go exactly well, starting in 1962, the Casey Stengel years. Well, that's <laughs> the exactly, lovable losers. That, that's exactly right. Uh, my first book, The Magnificent Seasons, was about the three teams and their history and how that all came about. But the reason that, that this team still is talked about is exactly what you said. That, you know, we made people feel better about their lives for a brief period of time because as the world was, we know right now was upside down, but the world back then in the late 60s was really upside down. The war in Vietnam was tearing this country apart. I mean, there was so many bad things happening. You know, when I was writing this book, I tried to use timeline events to show what was going on in the city and the country and the world when things were going on with these particular seasons with the Jets, the Mets, and the Knicks. And I, I just couldn't find any good news. It was always bad news, whatever was going on in the world at the time. I remember when the, the, the uh, Knicks won their championship in May, I think it was 7th or 8th, 7th or 8th of May in 70. Uh, I was looking for some something that happened around that time. And, and for those who remember, uh, three days before that championship ended up with the Knicks winning and beating a terrific uh, Laker team. Uh, we had the shootings at Kent State where yeah, five yeah. of the students were killed and eight or nine were, were injured by our own troops, the National Guard. And so that was what really was happening in the world at the time, and which made those teams really that much more, more important. But getting back to the Mets is that you're right. We made people feel better about their lives. They, they tagged on us from about the middle of August on when we started to play incredible baseball. And we just made them believe that there was some light at the end of the tunnel. And, and, and I get people coming up to me now who would just always thank me for doing that. And, and, and I always feel like if, if we as athletes can, can make somebody feel better about their lives and we really accomplish something. So I'm always so thrilled to meet somebody, a Vietnam veteran. I get that all the time who, who were in Vietnam and tell me they were in the worst place in the world, but we made them, they heard about the games or they happened to listen to it, whatever it might be. They, 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 we made them feel better about their lives for a brief period of time. And I think that that really is the true legacy of the team. And I think that's been passed on from generation to generation. And 50 years later or 52 years later, it's, it's amazing that even though we've lost a nucleus of, of a number of guys who were important to that team, there's still enough guys around to celebrate the, 
of being part of that uh, incredible team. And so I'm thankful of that, but it, it never goes, grows old for me it, to hear stories and to talk to people like yourself who remember that time and remember how great it was for baseball in New York and what we did for the city of New York. And so uh, I'm always glad to talk about it because it was so important to my, listen, my life, my life changed October 16th, 1969. I'm still in New York because of it. Um, everything I do is basically because I played on that team. And I'm now, I know, you know, I played for other teams and I played 13 years, but nobody for all intents and purposes wants to talk about the other 12. It's really about 1969. People don't bring up the Cincinnati Reds as much as they will no, the Mets, even no, though you I, started there. I, uh, I've got great memories from those teams and, and I was the prelude to the big red machine. And I know a lot of those guys who are part of that incredible mid seventies team, but, but uh, really it's, it's my life is really based on my, my baseball life is really based on my time with the Mets for all sure. purposes. And so, you know, I'm, I'm appreciative of that. And I, and I thank, I'm thankful for that and for the fans who still remember that and want to talk about it. Well, I'm going to bring you back uh, earlier than the Mets. I'm going to bring you back to the Cincinnati Reds in your, in your first days. And I'm going to actually hear about uh, your teammate, uh, Pete Rose, who's the all-time hit leader. And did you see it back then in his rookie years that he was going to become this iconic all-time great hit leader? Absolutely not. We started together in 1960, myself, Pete Rose, and Tony Perez. Tony, of course, is in the Hall of Fame. Pete, more hits than anybody in history game and probably should be in the Hall of Fame. And myself, three guys who eventually made it to the big leagues. But when you saw Pete first play, when he came to join us after his graduation in high school in 1960, you would have said, there's no way this guy is going to get any higher than where we were, which was class D, the lowest classification in baseball. Mm. Uh, you could possibly play at Geneva, New York, up in the New York Penn League. As a matter of fact, uh, as we became friends and played a number of years together, the next year they kept him back in Class D another year. He went to Tampa and Florida State League, and Tony stayed up in Geneva. So both of those guys played two years of Class D baseball, and they moved me to Topeka, Kansas in the 3I League. And I ended up playing there with for Dave Brister, who eventually managed the Reds and went on to a career as a manager in the big leagues. But um, the Reds were always developing good players back then. Remember, that was a period of time when there, there was only, what, 16 teams. They didn't expand. The good old days. Two. I like it that way. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another another time we can go into that discussion. But the reality of it is uh, it was tough to make it to the big leagues back then because there wasn't that many teams. So, But to answer your question, Pete couldn't play. The only thing he could do was really – run hard to first base after a walk. Charlie Hustle. He was and still Charlie, Charlie Hustle. Hustle, yeah. And then we were together in Macon, Georgia in 1962, and something happened from the period when we played in 60 to 62. Uh, he started developing his skills and really turned his whole game around, and uh, I think he led the league in hitting, and that was then called the Sally League. I was playing for Macon. It was a Reds forum team. And uh, really good uh, players on that team. Dave Bristol, again, was the manager. And a number of those guys went to the big leagues. But to answer your question about Rose, that was the year that he really developed into being a player. And the next year, they brought, brought him to spring training in Cincinnati and in Tampa. We were training in Tampa. And he made the Reds ball club in 63, became rookie of the year, and the rest is history. What do you think changed? Do you think it was his mindset? Do you think it was just a, his way of practicing? I is think it, what happened to, to him is... Yeah, I think what happened to him is he went down to Tampa in 61, another Class D team in the Florida State League. He played for Johnny Vandermeer. 
And Johnny Vandermeer is double no hit Johnny Vandermeer two hitters in a row. Yep. And he worked hard on his game. I don't know. If, uh, I wasn't there, so I don't know if Vandermeer worked with him and or got somebody to work with him. But I think his determination really was the, the thing that really made it happen for him. And he started working on things. He started on, on working on his fielding and and uh, obviously his hitting. He was a switch hitter from the time we we started together, but but uh, just really couldn't hit very well. And all of a sudden, I think in '62 he just started to to become a whole round, well-rounded player. And, you know, the rest is history. I, I don't know exactly what happened, except I think he's one of these guys that worked hard on his game. He would, he would be a guy that if we finished practice and was playing second base, uh, he took some ground balls. He would stay out there and take another 25, another 40, mm. another 50 ground balls. And if he, he flubbed one, he would go back to starting counting over again. He was one of those kinds of guys that did that. And that's really what happened. Such a great inspirational lesson to all of us, you know, how it doesn't matter where we are right now. It doesn't mean that's where we're going to end up if we could just keep applying well, you know, ourselves. Just you know? to take it one step further, I know there's a big controversy about whether he should be in the Hall of Fame or not. What, what the sad part of that whole scenario is that here's a guy that had more hits than anybody in the history of the game, has so many records, National League records, switch hitting records, all sorts of all-star records, four or five different positions as an all-star, but Here's the thing that, that that really really gets me is that, and more people now are swaying towards him being in the Hall of Fame than a few years ago. A few years ago, there was a, a number of people didn't want him in, but I think that's starting to change. Whether we see that in our lifetime, I don't know. But here's the thing that that really drives me crazy is that of all the people who don't think he should be in, who don't do not think he should be in, ninety nine and nine tenths percent of those wish everybody played the game like him. Yeah. And that's the sad part of that whole yep. scenario. No one played harder. Yeah. But I, I just don't know if we'll see it in our lifetime. They're pretty adamant about keeping him off the ballot for whatever reason. But listen, we could take hours talking about the Hall of Fame and where that's gone from the time I was a kid and the time I started playing and my idol idolizing the guys who made it into the Hall of Fame and where it's transpired to now. It's not it's not the same Hall of Fame that, that it was a number of years ago. And the game's not the same as it was a number of years ago. But that's that's a different conversation at some point, I think. And, and I, I think the way the, the rules are now with guys going back in, look at these guys, that, these managers who cheated, who are back in the game. You know, they cheated, uh, got a year suspension, but they're now back in the game. But, you know, gambling is the one no-no that uh, people are adamant about keeping people out of certain things. And so I'm not sure we'll see Pete in the Hall of Fame in our lifetime. Yep. Well, I want to brag on you a little bit, actually, because a lot of people don't realize that in 1969, you platooned in right field with Ron Swoboda. And when you combine both of your stats between you both, you hit a combined 24 home runs and you knocked in 99 runs, which if you put you both together, that would make you an all-star. And so you could have started for almost any other team in baseball. But in your book, you talk about how your legendary manager, Gil Harges was big on platooning players. And most players are probably would not be happy being a platoon player when they know they could have started elsewhere. How did you cope with that? And how did you feel about platooning? You know, I'm be honest with you, nobody liked it. It was, it was not good for your everyday play, although we did have good years and it wasn't good for your career because that's what they, you know, you just couldn't put up the numbers and they would hold that against you and you were trying to make a few dollars more whenever you went to contract negotiations. But the reality of it was we had the utmost respect for Gil Hodges, and that was the way he managed. Gil had a feel for the game. 
unlike managers today who really rely on sabermetrics and printouts. And Gil was a manager who, who understood the, the game and the players at the end of the bench and knew at some point he would need them and got everybody involved. And at some point early in the season, he decided to start platooning and he platooned in four positions and occasionally five, first base, second base, right field, third base, and occasionally behind the plate. Again, nobody liked it. It wasn't good for your career. And I'll give you a perfect example. I had a terrific playoffs against Atlanta. Had seven hits and 13 at-bats. We swept Atlanta in the playoffs, the first year of the playoffs in the National League and American League. And I don't start the first game of the World Series because he was pitching, they were pitching left-hander, Mike Quare. He did send me in the pinch hit in the ninth inning with the game on the line. And I ended up grounding out to second base. And that was the last at-bat at in the first game we lost and the only game we lost in the World Series. I will tell you this, though, and, and I, a lot of people don't know this, but and I mentioned it in the book. I think about that at-bat every day of my life. That was an at-bat that I'll never, never get out of my mind. It was a little pitch that he threw right over the plate, and I grounded out to second base. I could have just as easily hit it out of the ballpark, but I could have been a hero and ended up grounding out. But I think about that at-bat every single day. But just getting back to your question, about how did we cope with it? We, we just dealt with it because it was working and we had the utmost respect for, for Gil Hodges. And so um, I think you could look at all the positions that he platooned in at first base. They got a, a great year out of Clendenin and Crane pulled together, Boswell and Weiss at second base, and then Garrett and uh, Ed Charles at third base. Uh, he just got the most out of everybody. And I think he proved that that uh, uh, feel, the, the manager, the way he managed by feel worked and now we've we've kind of segued in the game today where everything is on printouts and and management makes out the lineups for the most 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 of the time and so uh, gill was a different kind of manager so i think to answer your question i think we just respected gill too much we didn't like it but it was working so we dealt with it that that, that's the ultimate you were the ultimate team player yeah, i think it's important yeah. to understand that we all pulled for each other too mm. there was never a situation where we were hoping that somebody would make an out in a certain situation. That, that was never the case. We, we all were very good friends. Ronnie Sobota and I speak often, even today, and, uh, and I pulled for him, and I, I'm pretty sure he pulled for me when we were out there. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it just was working, and he got uh, great results out of it. Well, that's a great lesson for business, for, for life, you know, uh, how working as a team is uh, more important than individual stats. And a lot of people talk it. Uh, you lived it that year for sure. And it all worked out at the end. Well, of the you know, day. it's interesting too, to take it one step further. I think one of the truth, two things that people remember about that is when you talk about 69, uh, the 69 Mets, it's not just that you talk about Tom Seaver or Jerry Kuzman or Cleon Jones or Tommy Agee. You do talk about everybody who was part of that team because at some point they did something to help us win. And, and you can go all the way down to the end of the bench with uh, Rod Gaspar and and uh, Duffy Dyer. Everyone and, had a role. Yep, yeah. And, uh, and uh, Don Cardwell and Cal. Al Mighty, uh, Mighty Weiss broke Mighty, out in the World yeah. Series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so that was the, the true genius in Gil Hodges and the way he managed because he got the most out of everybody. And I think that, uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind the Mets would have won more championships if Gil would have lived longer. And uh, unfortunately, he died at a very young age. But uh, I think people will remember that year, you know, because of him and obviously because of the players. Well, I looked up salaries of that year and I was astonished to find out that Tom Seaver earned a whole $40,000. 
and the glider Ed Charles earned $35,000. <laughs> and then I think back to 1977, which most Mets fans uh, do not have fond memories of, when uh, the franchise, uh, Tom Siva, was sold away because uh, the Mets didn't want to pay him $200,000, which uh, in today's terms is quite a bit of a bargain. <laughs> not even the minimum salary now. <laughs> minimum salary now, I believe, is five seventy-five, somewhere around yep. there. And, um, well, it's a different world. You know, everything in life is timing. You know, it's just, yep. it's not, um, it, you know, I don't begrudge these guys making the money they're making. I wish I was playing right now, making yeah. some of it. But, but um, it was a different world. Uh, you know what? The way I look at it, I've got nothing, uh, no regrets. I, I played on that championship team. But the other thing I think is important to remember is that I got a chance to play with, uh, with and against the greatest conglomerate players in the history of the game. That I say 63 through seven, early 70s. Look at the National League with Mays, Aaron, Clemente, Koufax, Dreisdale. The greatest it, era that I could remember. It, 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 it was just an incredible period. So for me to be part of that era and be play against and with guys, you know, I came up in Cincinnati and Frank Robinson, Veda Pinson were there, Tommy Harper and played with Bench and Rose and Perez and Lee May and guys mm -hmm. that went on to have great careers. And so just looking at some of the, the guys I played with against some of the pitchers in the National League at that particular time. I'm Can I ask you, uh, I, I have a big question for you because sure. I want to talk about some of those Hall of Fame pitchers that you batted against. And I want to know who would you rather not face in a two-game series? Two pitchers here from each team. Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton of the St. Louis Cardinals, Juan Marichal and Gaylord Perry of the San Francisco Giants, or Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale of the Dodgers? Um, you know, it's interesting. Could I take one from each instead of both? Yes. One from um, column A, one from column B. Okay, definitely. <laughs> Carlton was very tough. Koufax, of course, was really tough. And and um, who was the third team? It was uh, it was Koufax, Drysdale. Marichal and Gaylord Perry. All Ma Hall of well, Famers. Marichal, even though he was right-handed, was tough for me because I couldn't see the ball. That and high first, leg kick. The high, And he would turn his back and particularly out at Candlestick Park. Windy. Uh, yeah, he was really tough. And you're, you'd be freezing out there and your eyes would be tearing and the wind would be blustering and he'd be kicking that leg way up and turning his back. And I had trouble with him early in my career, but as I got older and had more patience, he, he, he became less difficult. But Koufax, of course, was overpowering and Carlin was tough on the left-handers. But, but, you know, batting left-handed for most, uh, in, most against those guys in my career, you know, you know, I didn't have as much trouble with some of the right-handed batters, you know, Gibson or um, Drysdale. Um, those guys, uh, for me, um, were not as tough as, you know, the Carltons and the Koufaxes, obviously, and, and some of those tough pitchers. But listen, that, that whole era of pitching in the National League was was really tough. You had, I remember if you, before San Diego came in the league, when you started in St. Louis, you get uh, Gibson and Carlton, and you go to San, Los Angeles, you get Drysdale. You get Drysdale, Koufax, Don Sutton, and the left-hander, um, I can't think of his name. I'll think of it in a second. And then you go to San Francisco, and you get uh, you get Claude Osteen. And then you go to San Francisco, and you get uh, Marichelle Perry and Mike McCormick, who had just come off the year where he won the Cy Young. So that West Coast trip was no fun. But, but it was great baseball, and you worked hard to – really had to pay your dues against those guys, but it was a great era. So I'm very lucky to have been part of it. Who was the greatest ball player you ever played against and why? 
Well, it's hard to bet against or say anything against Mays because he was so great. Number 24. Yeah. Another Solomon. guy, number 24. Solomon, yeah. <laughs> you and him. Yeah, well, he was a little better ball player than me, but I saw him in his prime career. But then you'd go to – you'd leave him and you'd go to uh, – you go to Pittsburgh and you'd say, who's Roberto Clemente. Clemente. <laughs> yeah. And then you go to LA, not LA, you go to Atlanta and you'd see Aaron and, and he's Aaron. better than him. Yep. And then I played with Frank Robinson and you'd say, who's better than him? And you watch him every triple every crown day. winner in both leagues. Unbelievable. So for me, to, you know, but then you could go down the whole list. You had in the national league, you had great players in Billy Williams. You had the um, bench, you had Orlando Cepeda, McCovey, um, mm -hmm. Stargell. Willie Stargell. I mean, yep. gosh, almighty. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving out a bunch of them, pops. Yep. Yeah. The whole, the whole national league was, was very, very tough. And then when the Reds traded uh, Frank Robinson over to the, the Baltimore, I think that was the beginning where the American league started to catch up with the, the national league in terms of, of stars and quality of baseball, but that national league in the, in the sixties from 63 on to early seventies, uh, was really tough. No one expected you to beat the Baltimore Orioles. Here they have two of the greatest legends of all time, Brooks Robinson, who to me, I've never seen a fielder better than Brooks Robinson, human vacuum cleaner at third base. And of course, Frank Robinson. And of course they had a stellar pitching staff, including Jim Palmer. Did you really believe that you were going to beat them? Well, listen, you, you, you might forget we won a hundred games that year. And during the regular season, they won 108, I believe. And even when we lost the first game that I talk about so much is that in the World Series, we knew we had Kuzman pitching the next day. They beat Seaver. And uh, again, if we don't win that game in, in Baltimore, you'd come back to New York one and one. We might lose four in a row, but they had a terrific team. And, and I do think the second game of the World Series was the most important in terms of us needing a victory. Some people think it was the third game when Palmer pitched against Gary Gentry. Um, I, I do think the second game was the most important and, and we come back to New York one and one and we got breaks. There's no doubt about it. A lot of things fell in our, our way. And of course we had the great series by Clendenin and Al Weiss, somebody that nobody would have thought of to, to be a hero, but the things fell in our way, you know, and listen, they played us, um, you know, 10, 15 times, who knows how many they would have won, but, but we had a really good team. A lot of people forget that we won a hundred games during the season. I think, I think people forget that we had a great defensive ball club up the middle. We had Jerry Grody, who was a terrific catcher behind the plate, Al Weiss and Boswell at second, and Harrelson at short, and Tommy Agee in center field. Terrific defense up the middle. And we, even though they had two 20-game winners that season, Palmer only won, I think, 17 or 18 that year. So they had two 20-game winners. But they had a terrific pitching staff. But we had a better bullpen than they did. And it was proven in the World Series. And and I would put um, Seaver and Kuzman up against their two starters, even though they both won 20 games, McNally and uh, Mike Cuellar. What might, might think that we were overmatched, I look at it as a little different. I think we had a really good team that, uh, that just played up to our capabilities and definitely got some breaks. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, in a few words, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of your iconic teammates. Let's start with Jerry Kuzman, the lefty number two pitcher. He had a terrific pitcher, uh, was kind of hidden behind Seaver. But again, if we don't win that second game of the World Series, uh, we, uh, we, don't, uh, we don't come back and, and beat Baltimore. As clutch Jerry, as they come, right? Uh, he's, a, he's a clutch. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I called in the, in the book, after the miracle, I called the Seaver uh, Van Gogh and 
and Kuzman Patton, two different personalities. But uh, if you ever wanted the guy of a guy on the mound that, uh, that was going to battle for you, it was Jerry Kuzman, a terrific pitcher. Should have won more games than he did that year. I forget what the reasons were, but I just, in my mind, thinks he should have been a 20-game winner that season. Just a character on and off the field. Serious when he was pitching, but a real character, a great teammate. Uh, I still talk to him all the time. Uh, he's out in uh, in Minnesota um, and ended up having a great career. He's borderline Hall of Fame. He had the, the couple bad years with the Mets subsequent to 1969, which hurt him, but but uh, he was a terrific pitcher. Mm, yeah. And uh, Tug McGraw, your bullpen ace. Who's that, McGraw? Tug McGraw. Oh, Frank McGraw, I like to call him. That was his, a lot of people didn't know his name was Frank, but Tug was a, was a, another character that uh, in the locker room was just uh, uh, unbelievable. Fun on and off the field, but uh, and really good uh, reliever. Pitched some great pit baseball for us. Uh, um, learned to throw the screwball, which really helped him, but uh, Tug was uh, definitely died too young. He was uh, 59 when he passed away. He uh, was a great teammate, uh, a terrific pitcher. Came up with, you got to believe, one of the greatest icon that was iconic slogans. Yeah, 73. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Cleon Jones, who hit 340 that year, almost won the batting title, got beaten out by the guy by the name of Pete Rose and a few yeah, other guys. <laughs> one of the best hitters I've seen. Cleon that year was uh, just terrific. Uh, you know, you can mention all these guys and every one of them. If they don't, we don't have them, we might not win the, the Pennant other World Series. Cleon was so instrumental, along with Tommy Agee in center field. But great year for Cleon, hit 340 that year and uh, clutch hitter, um, and was just um, another great teammate. How about the all-time leading pitcher in strikeouts and no-hitters, Nolan Ryan? When he was part of the worst trade in Mets history and maybe all baseball history, perhaps next to the Babe Ruth trade. Um, you know, uh, did you have any inkling that Nolan Ryan would be that good? Well, we knew he had a great arm. He used to throw batting practice for us or to us. And he was just trying to impress Rube Walker, the bat uh, pitching coach and, uh, and Gil, of course. And he would just throw as hard as he could in batting practice. It was a waste of time. He very rarely threw strikes. And so we'd go in there and, and just try to follow pitch off. We knew he had a great arm. He pitched some great baseball that year witnessed by how he pitched in the playoffs in the World Series. Pitched in game three in the World Series and saved the game for Gary Gentry. Did we know he would become the, the pitcher that uh, he became in the Hall of Famer? Let me just say this. Every team makes bad trades. Yep. You look in the history of, uh, of baseball, every team has made bad trades. Yep. That, of course, looks like one of the worst and, and turned out to be one of the worst. He went on to have a fabulous career. Um, I, I would venture to say that we all knew that he had a great arm was he going to be a, um, a, the kind of pitcher that would win so many games over a course of a career? Nobody knew. Um, I think going over to the American League really helped him, even though he was facing, uh, eventually faced a DH, an extra batter in the lineup. But I just think he went over to the American League and just kind of found himself over there. Whether it was a new pitching coach or just new hitters, I just don't know. But but, uh, you know, the Mets thought they were getting a good player in Jim Fergosi, who was probably at the end of his career. They wanted to get a third baseman. For the life of me, I'm not sure why they ever let Ed Charles go after 1969. He could have played another two or three years and been really important part of the team. It was an important part of the locker room. To answer your question, it turned out to be one of the worst trades ever in baseball. But 
again, every team makes bad trades. Yeah, that's well said, Art. So after the miracle, your incredible book, which I couldn't put down, uh, it chronicles a trip that you organized to visit the ailing star of the 69 Mets, of course, the greatest Met of them all, the one they called the franchise, Tom Seaver. Why did you organize the trip? Which teammates did you pick to join you? And why these particular teammates? Well, after the miracle was really born out of my desire to, to, to write a book about the 50th anniversary, which was coming up. This was 2017. Anniversary was coming out in 2019. I wanted to write a book that was not about the gay, the games, the day-to-day things that happened that season. I will venture to say that the New York Mets, the, 19, the 1969 Mets, have had more books written about them than any team in the history of sports. I don't know how many, but no other team has had so many books written about them. And I just wanted to write something different. And I, I, I hooked up with a, a writer by the name of Eric Sherman, who had written a number of books before, um, written one on Davey Johnson, Mookie Wilson, the 1986 Mets. And I met Eric and, and we talked about this philosophy of wanting to do, this would be my second book. He'd written about five or six at the time, maybe six or seven. And we just wanted to do something different. And so we decided to talk about the relationships that developed from us winning that World Series that year and how long and how they've lasted almost all this this period of time. And even though we lost a number of guys, we wanted to, to, to talk about the, the friendships and relationships that still go on. And so we decided to, to write this book uh, in 2017. And we started to do some interviews. And Ed Charles was our first interview. And I'm so thankful we got to him. I'm so sad when he passed away. But it was important for us to talk to him at the time because he had so much to say about his life and his career and being part of that team. And, and after we did a couple of interviews, uh, I said to Eric, or he might have said it to me, I said, I don't think we, we should do a phone interview with Tom Seaver. You know, even though he's not traveling now, we need to go out there and do this interview in person. And um, this was a beginning of the 2017 year. And, and we ended up going out there in May of 2017. And we decided that if we, we did that, to take a couple players with us and just reminisce with them. And the reality of this whole thing is we could take in any three players. It didn't make any difference. We were all friends. We decided to take um, uh, Jerry Kuzman because he was the second best pitcher on the team. Buddy Harrelson, who had just announced that he was starting to have early signs of Alzheimer's. And uh, we decided to see if he could go with us and work it out with his family that he could. And Ron Soboda, who made the great catch in game four when he was pitching, when Tom was pitching. And so we coordinated this trip to go out there. And again, we could have taken any three players. And for various reasons, these three worked out. Buddy was a little difficult because he was not well um, in terms of being able to travel, but we talked to his family, met him at the airport, held on to him as we got on the plane and just really watched out for him on this trip. And the coordinating the trip was just difficult because Boda was in New Orleans and Kuzman was in Minnesota and, and Ron Smoda's wife had recently just had surgery and was not well. And so we tried to work around his schedule. He was doing some local TV broadcasting with uh, minor league games in New Orleans and we had to find an off day for him. And so make a long story short, we coordinated this trip and, and, and we, but there's a little bit more to the story because when I called Tom to talk to him about doing this, he said, I'd love to see you guys. Let me, I mean, work it out with my wife. She's got my calendar. 
And I talked to his wife, Nancy, and she said, you know, you guys can come all the way out here to California and Tom might not be feeling very well. And then, you know, he might just be a wasted trip. And so that was a little bit of a damp run up. Eric Sherman and I decided to, to roll the dice. We got tickets for the guys. We paid for it ourselves out of our pocket. And we decided to fly out there on a Friday to, uh, to San Francisco and then rent a car to go up to Calistoga where he lived up in the Napa Valley, where he has the wine country, where he has the wine business. And so we got to California on this Friday and uh, I called to see um, how he was doing. And Nancy said, you know, today's not a good day. He's not feeling well. It's gonna be late in the afternoon by the time you get here. And let's try for tomorrow. I, we said, okay. But the problem we had was that tomorrow being Saturday was the only day we could do it because we had to leave Sunday to get connecting flights for the guys that get back, they had to be back Sunday. You lose three hours going back east or two hours in, in, in Kuzman's case. That doesn't make any difference. The story is that we had to get back on Sunday. And so the next morning I called and Nancy said, okay, get over here as soon as you can. He's feeling pretty good. Looking forward to seeing you. Well, we got there, drove about 30, uh, 30 yeah, about 30, 40 minutes to get there. We were stayed in the town uh, about the, uh, a little time, a little ways away because we couldn't get a room in Calistoga. Anyway, we got there and we spent eight or nine hours with Tom reminiscing about uh, his, the team, our lives, how they changed, uh, teammates. He showed us around his, his home with the wine uh, acres and it was just an incredible day of, like I said, eight or nine hours just reminiscing and, 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 and it was important for us to be there to talk to Tom in person as opposed to a, interview over the phone. And as we were leaving and saying goodbye, it was bittersweet because we knew he wasn't well. He, he had um, really talked about not traveling anymore. He wasn't coming back east. He wasn't going to be back at, at uh, City Field. Uh, he wasn't going to be back doing any of that kind of stuff. And so it was bittersweet in the sense that we knew that we might not see each other anymore, all of us. And it was, it was tough. We already lost so many guys on that team. And so uh, it was sad, but it was important, like I said, that we did this interview. And looking back, writing the book, uh, the book isn't about Tom Seaver in a sense, uh, just about him, but it's about the trip to take out there to be, see him and about the friendships and the camaraderie that we had as teammates and how we still maintain those relationships uh, at that point, 50 years later. And, uh, and I think that was important for us to show the fans and the people who were going to read the book about how close we were as a team and what that team did for all of us in all our lives and how it changed our lives and, and how we still remain friends. And I think the beauty of that book um, is that, that it's just not about the day-to-day -day things that happened during the season. Yes, people want to know what happened when the quack cat ran on the field. They want to know this, they want to know that, they want to know how we won, et cetera. But I think it was important for us to talk about how close we became as, a, as teammates and friends. And, and as you mentioned it earlier, when you talked about when you were introducing me, is about how bad this team was early on from 62 on. And I think that was important to, to understand that for guys like Eddie Cranepool and Soboda and Tug McGraw, who were there during some really awful years, and then for us to go ahead and win a World Series coming from ninth place the year before a half game out of last place, that made us all even closer. And that's what we tried to get across in the book. And and I'm hopefully, and I'm glad that people liked the way we did it. It was very sentimental. I've had people tell me they, they cried reading some of it. And, 
And um, our intention was to just make people understand that the human aspect of how this team came, became close and stayed together during these years. And again, we've lost a number of players that, uh, that uh, were important to the team, all were important to the team, including Gil and all our coaches, except Joe Pignatano and key players on the team, but we still remain close and still love the fact that we help people get through some tough times in New York and, and still remain friends. Well, I'm going to tell you, Art, after reading your book, your book is like two books in one. Of course, it's, a, like you said, about the 1969 Mets and all the wonderful things and magical things that happened that year. And it's also about, as you said, it's about teammates, you know, who forge a lasting bond that lasts forever because you have things in commonality. You had a world championship, but more than a world championship, you had respect for each other. You platooned with each other. Uh, you didn't like it, maybe but you understood it uh, and you didn't hold it against the other player that you platooned with. And I have to tell you something. I can see a Hollywood script in this. I would watch that movie. I would be uh, anticipating. Well, actually, <laughs> there's been some talk about it, but I think, you know, we, we, we didn't even talk very much about guys like Ed Charles, who were so important to the team. Um, he was the, he was the guy and he was the glue in the clubhouse. He was the guy who had spent so many years in the minor leagues because of the color of his skin and, and his life was was so touching, and he knew he knew how to deal with people and knew about people's lives. And he was a guy that uh, that would put his arm around you if you had a bad game, whether you were a pitcher or, or an outfielder or an infielder. He would he would he knew how to help you. And we had guys like Clint Denon who would who would scream across the room to to get on you about something, whether it was the way you your uniform fit or the way your tie looked. And great Clint Denon. So we, we, we had guys that would would. Put it, put out the fire. So, so we had so many guys like that, and uh, you know, and 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 I, and I just I relish those moments that I spent spent with the guys. And even when we get together now, I'm still close with Eddie Craneful and and uh, Swoboda and, and and Rod Gaspar and Kenny Boswell and guys that that I love. And if they need me today, I'm I'm on a plane to, to wherever they need me, and I'll be there. And and that's important. And I think that book really showed how close we were. And, and uh, you know when Tom, uh, when Seaver passed away, it was it was just a shock to all of us because mm -hmm. even though we knew he was sick, we 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 were you know you don't you think those kind of guys can live forever because of the stature True. as a player and how important he was to the franchise. But but life is precious, and uh, as we've seen this past year or so with what's going on in the world and in the country and the city and with the pandemic and and everything is is kind of upside down now, but. What we have, what I have is that, that, that teammate, that, that glory that we had that, that we can talk about. And I get a chance to speak with the, uh, people like yourself who reminisce with me and, and, and remember how important that team was. So for me, it's just a beautiful experience. So Art, being a big league ball, baseball player is pretty much every kid's dream. <laughs> Not only did you get to the majors, but you were successful and you played for, of course, one of the most iconic baseball teams in history. A lot of athletes say they appreciated the game more years later when they retired in retrospect than they did while playing. How about you? I miss the game. I, I wish I was out there playing now for obvious reasons, but you know, I, I really miss it now when spring training is going on. Um, but I still have the memories and I think that keeps me going. You know, you can sit there and eat your heart out and say, about it. why are these guys making all the money? Why didn't it happen to me? But you can't, you can't look at it that like that. You just have to you know, life's about timing. It's about being in the right place at the right time. And again, I appreciate, 
um, having played with and against some of the greatest players in the history. And you had fun doing it. You, you don't look back I and say, fun. I wish I had more. Yeah. I'll tell you a very quick story. And, and I remember when, when Gil sent me up to pinch it in the ninth inning of that first game. And that's the, that bad. I think about every day in my life was rounded out to second base. I had a little time on the on deck circle to think about exactly what you're talking about and, and about my life. And, 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 and when I was on the on deck circle thinking, you know, I thought back to when my dad took me outside when I was able to walk and started soft tossing baseballs with me and then playing little league baseball, which was then not little league where I grew up in St. Louis it was called Corey league baseball. And I remember going from that to, 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 you know, whatever level that, that little league was. And then, you know, uh, American Legion ball, high school ball, minor league baseball, signing a professional contract and all the bus trips and all the uh, station wagon trips that we took in the minor leagues uh, when you traveled by station wagon and all the practices, all the times I went out with my friends to, to play in the park and make up games. And I thought about that on the on deck circle in about 30 seconds, my life passed in front of me. And I said to myself, all those things that I did in, as an amateur in minor leagues, it was to get to this moment in my life, every kid's dream playing in the World Series. And, and unfortunately, I, I didn't, wasn't a hero, but I, I just saying that to myself was what every kid dreams about being in the World Series. And then again, lucky enough to be on a team that wins the World Series on an iconic team that's still talked about today. I've got no regrets and I've got nothing to complain about. And I, I'm very appreciative to people like yourself who still want to talk about it and and remind me about how lucky I was as a baseball player to be part of that team. And so me, I I'm, I'm, um, say a little prayer every day to having been part of it because, um, you know, like you said, it's, it's not many kids get a chance to do it. You have to be in the right place at the right time. I saw a lot of kids that I grew up with who were great players that either got hurt or couldn't make it. Guys in the minors who looked to me like they were, they were no brainers. They were going to make it and somehow they got weeded out for whatever reason. So I'm very lucky, and, and, and injuries did they take their toll on me. I got hurt a lot and a number of operations, but I can't can't begrudge anybody today, and, and, and I'm so thankful that I had a chance to play, got a chance to play 13 years. And so for me, uh, I feel very, very lucky. I have to ask you a question that's been in my mind for a very long time, Art. So you have two guys that have similar talents. One guy excels, the other guy does not. Is it because the guy who excels is thinking – positively is it because he's thinking that he can't fail and he's going to catch the ball and he's going to hit versus the other guy who's saying oh my god don't hit it to me or what if i don't catch the ball did that ever pop into your mind along well, the way it's a good question i think about guys like i said i, I saw guys who to me looked like they, they were going to make it the big leagues easy i'm mean, guys that great arms pitchers great hitters fielders whatever it was I think a lot of it's timing. A lot of it's being in an organization back in those days where you couldn't, there was no free agency. You couldn't make it and you got weeded out for whatever reason. You either got hurt. They put in a bad report, some scout up there who was uh, stuffing his face with uh, hot dogs and having sodas or <laughs> drinks. And he's writing a report on you. You might have a bad game. And that was it. Didn't follow up with the next game. Didn't see how you played. And, and then you get labeled, unfortunately. And I think, I, I think that happened a lot. Uh, again, it was timing being in an organization that uh, just got, you got a chance to, to, to make it up there. And I remember when I got traded to the Mets, 
from the Cincinnati Reds. And I got that call from the general manager and I thought it was the worst day in my life because I'm leaving the Reds, going to a bad team. I didn't really like New York. And um, at that moment, I thought, this is what's going to happen to my career? And it turned out it became the best break I ever had. You know, I would have liked to have been on the big red machine, but who can trade that? I'd trade that for being part of the 69 Mets. So, so for me, it, it turned out to be a blessing. So I think it's all time timing. And there are some guys who have an 0 for 4 in a game. And, 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 I, and I took the, home, the game home with me. And there was a lot of times that I think it hurt me. I would take the game home and I'd worry about a strike. Even though I got a couple hits in the game. I think about a strikeout if I had a runner on second base or third base. It didn't help the team win a ball game. But there are guys who shrug it off, who were able to bounce back the next day. And, and, and those guys are the guys that, that, that can get through a lot of tough Mind, it's Mindset, yeah. So, mindset, I mean, yeah. you know, you're, let's face it, you did play in an era where there was only 16 teams. It's not as watered down as it is today. It's a lot harder to, to make it to the club. Uh, There's far fewer players. And here you're going up against uh, the giants of uh, baseball history. Bob Gibson in 1968 set the ERA record. 1.12 ERA and you had a bat against him. So, you know, that to me is fascinating how a player can get up there knowing I'm facing, you know, Sandy Koufax, the greatest pitcher arguably ever. I'm facing think, Bob Gibson. Think, yeah. I think as a hitter, what you have to do is remind yourself, this is a game of percentages. It's always the, uh, no other game in sports is uh, where you fail seven out of 10 times. And you're going to be a star. And, and, I, and, and, and I think what you, what you tell yourself is, yeah, yeah, you're going to hit some balls good and it's going to be caught and you're going to get some numbers that fall in for base hits. So you got to just understand that that's the philosophy of the game or that's the way the game is. But I think what, what boggles me in the game, there's so many strikeouts. Guys don't try to put the ball in play. It's all about home runs and, and doubles and RBIs. And I think um, that's not the game that I remember as a kid growing up. And it's always about putting the ball in play and, and understanding the game is about a game of percentages, but, but you're right. I just, I think it's a mindset on guys who, who, uh, who really couldn't handle an 0 for 4 had a bad game and couldn't bounce back in another day or two. And the other side of the coin is guys just got hurt. Guys were, you know, they didn't have, they don't have the medicine back then that they have today. They don't have the, the rehabilitation techniques that they have today and guys get hurt. And, and, and once you got hurt, I, I remember, telling somebody, a wise man once telling me, he said, don't stay out of that trainer's room. Stay out of there. Don't <laughs> let them see you in the trainer's room. Stay away from that drain pipe, you know, in the outfield. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to find a way. If you, you can't play, they'll get somebody else in and you might never, you get out there again. So I think that was what I tried to do, but unfortunately I got hurt. But I think that to answer your question, I think just a lot of it was mindset and a lot of it's timing. Yeah. So my last question is, you know, what lessons did the game of baseball and being a world champion teach you in retrospect 52 years later? Well, baseball is a wonderful sport, no matter what level you play, to, to, to teach you teamwork, humility, how to deal with failure, how to rely on your, your teammates to help you get through uh, wins and get through tough days. And I think baseball is always going to be that. Uh, again, I feel very lucky to have been part of this incredible team that that uh, still is talked about today. And, uh, and that's why I, I, I stay visible. I, I, I tweet, I'm on Twitter, uh, do the podcast. Uh, I, I try to try to get people to go to my website to order books and to, to talk to me or comment on things. And I try to just stay visible uh, because I think it's important. I, I don't want to drop out, so to speak. I want to stay out there and be visible. And people still want to talk to me about 
about that 69 team. And I make a lot of personal appearances uh, on Zoom. Uh, obviously, Zoom this past year, and hopefully things will open up pretty soon. And I'll be able to go out and do some personal appearances in person. But uh, I just try to stay connected because I think it's important for people to want to know about my career, about my life, about playing for that 69 team. And so for me, it's I think that's the lessons I've learned is just to stay visible and always remember that that uh, humility is very important. Uh, I don't take things for granted anymore. Uh, being part of that that 69 team, I feel very lucky. Let me just, a very quick story about that year. You know, that season in spring training in 69, I got hurt in spring training. I played in two or three games and missed the whole rest of spring training with an injured back. I started the season on a disabled list. I missed the first 21 days of wow. the season. My life went full circle. I did not know if I was going to be playing baseball anymore, let alone be on a world championship team. And, and, and I had doubts about myself and what was going to happen to my career. And all of a sudden, my life went full circle and ended up on a world championship team. So I don't take anything for granted. I'm very thankful that I get a chance to speak to people like yourself who, who understand that how important that team was. And, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity because I, I, I know how important it was to be part of that team and how important we were to the fans of New York. Art, how can people find out more about your books and about Art Shamsky if they wanted to hire you for their event? Well, they can go to my website. I have books. Uh, I, I, I they can still probably get books at bookstores and uh, Magnificent Seasons and, of course, uh, uh, After the Miracle. But what I, I recommend people to do is go to my website because they can then get the book, order the book on the website, and then I can do a personal salutation. If they get it at a bookstore, uh, whatever way they get it, and then they got to track me down somehow and, and send it to me by mail, or they could go to a personal appearance, which uh, hopefully there'll be some personal. And your website is? www.artshamsky.com. Easy to remember. And the podcast is uh, the Art Shamsky podcast, and it's on all the major podcast platforms like iHeart and Spotify and Stitcher and Apple. And so uh, I try to do that um, every other week and get something up there, whether it's sports or entertainment. And again, stay connected. And so, um, and Twitter, it's at Art Shamsky, very simple. And I try to uh, do some things to Twitter just to, to, to generate some kind of feedback from people and, and, and conversation. And just, again, my, my goal is really to stay visible and stay out there. For those listening, go get yourself the book, After the Miracle. You'll enjoy it as much as I have. It's been a pleasure today to have number 24, the great Art Shamsky on our program. And I want to thank you for helping me to fulfill one of my bucket lists in interviewing a 1969 New York Mets world champion. Thank you, well, Mark. You would, you're a great interviewer. Thank you so much for having me on and best of luck. And stay well and stay, stay healthy. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.